Let's open our Bibles to the book of Job this evening, Job chapter number 1. And uh, I want to preach a little message to you that's been on my heart. Before we close tonight, we're going to pray over these gospel tracts and uh, and the ones. There's a few folks that asked for some, and, and uh, we went ahead and distributed them. The Lord knows about those that you got in your purse too. Amen. And so we'll be praying over those as well and asking God to uh, to favor that endeavor. Uh, the purpose has nothing to do with numbers. Now, we do encourage folks to uh, drop those completed calendars in the offering plate. But that's really just to be an encouragement to the rest of the church family. Uh, it's not because it only counts if you do that. It's not because God's impressed with it. Uh, but uh, we want to be able to encourage one another. But now the reason we do that is because uh, things like that can be habit-forming. And there's, we got a lot of bad habits. <laughs> we need a few good habits, amen? And uh, that's the design of that Track Today Challenge, is really just to, to get you and I used to it, to condition us to where it's not even something we think about. We just, we're checking out somewhere and we just reach for a gospel track. Or we're uh, paying the bill at a restaurant, we just reach for a gospel track. Or uh, maybe we're going and getting ready to pay for our stuff at the gas station, we just reach for a gospel track. So that's the idea behind that. And I'm excited about what God's going to do through it. We'll say a word about that before we close. Uh, but let's begin our reading this evening, Job chapter number 1. I'm going to be, begin reading and uh, in the middle of this chapter by design. Uh, we'll begin reading at verse number 14. We'll read to the end of this chapter. And then I want to read a few verses in chapter number 2. And I want to draw our attention to a, a uh, not just a verse, but even a particular word in chapter number 2. So Job chapter number 1, verse number 14. The Word of God says, There came a messenger unto Job, and said, The oxen were plowing, the asses feeding beside them. The Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell them. While he was yet speaking, there came also another, and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven, hath burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another, and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young men, and they are dead, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground and worshipped, and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Now in chapter 2, look down in verse number 7. Word of God says, So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this did not Job sin with his lips. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and thank you for this, another opportunity to gather in your house. We don't take it lightly, Lord. 
Uh, there are many, Father, undoubtedly across this country uh, who went to the house of God this morning and worshipped, uh, but tragedy struck them this afternoon, uh, calamity struck them, and they find themselves unable to be in the house of God tonight. Undoubtedly, even amongst our own community, there have been some that last week could have walked under their own power and volition into the house of God and worshipped and, and undoubtedly did so that today cannot. God, we are conscious to give You praise that we find ourselves in this place once again. I pray that You'd take the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, that You'd wield it in our hearts and lives. And may You, Lord, encourage us in Your Word. May You convict us. And may You make us more into the image of Christ. We'll be sure to thank You for it. Lord, we love You. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice particularly in our passage this evening what the Bible says in verse number 10. The Bible says, But He said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this did not Job sin with his lips. A moment ago in the reading of the text, I, I timed just for my own edification uh, how long it took to read our text this evening. It took me just shy of two minutes. And I understand that the events in chapter 1 and the events in chapter 2 likely did not transpire on the same day. Has it ever dawned on you that Job's entire life changed in less than two minutes of time? He goes from being a wealthy man, he goes from being a healthy man, he goes from being a man surrounded by loved ones and family and security and stability, loved and, and uh, admired in his community, to all of a sudden being a lonely, devastated, outcast pariah that has been cast upon the ash pile of his own life. Can I tell you, you and I, we are not promised that our days will always be restful. We are not promised that we will not be met with calamity and and tragedy, and when you view the world from where I said in ministry, and I understand pastors are sort of inducted into more heartache than a lot of people are. You're in the business of ministering to people in their darkest times, but it does give you an understanding and an appreciation for the fact that, hey, listen, there ain't no guarantee that your life won't take a turn in some way like what Job's life did. Job's entire life is transformed. Uh, we could make three statements about that. The first being that his home was devastated. He was a man that, as many patriarchs in days of old had done, it would appear he had retained his family upon his homestead and upon his land. And undoubtedly he had deeded and gifted to his children certain portions of land that would be their own and, and their family. But uh, it was common back then and has been common for much of human history uh, for a family to stay together and to work the same land and to, to share the same space. And undoubtedly, Job, as he is an older man now, we do not know how old, but he's old enough that he's got grown children with their own homes and their own houses. No doubt he was enjoying the fruit of many years' labor as he enjoyed having his children and uh, maybe possibly his grandchildren uh, around him and surrounding him it would appear as though him and his wife had enjoyed domestic bliss at least to some degree prior to this. I'm saying everything's going well for him. His home is what a man works to want their home to be. 
I think most of us would admit if we could reach the twilight of our life and enjoy having our family gathered in around us and enjoy financial stability, be able, not to, not, not trying to rule the world, man, just trying to live in comfort and rest and repose, that would be called success to many people. And Job had a life like that. And then in less than two minutes, his home is devastated. He's standing beside ten freshly dug graves, He's standing beside the financial uh, ruins of a once illustrious life. Everything he thought that he could depend on has all of a sudden fallen to pieces. His home was devastated. When we come to chapter 2, we find that his health has been debilitated. Uh, We are told he is cursed with boils from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot. When Job woke up in the morning, undoubtedly there was not a square inch on his body that did not hurt. If you have experienced health battles, and I have been blessed to not have to experience them the way a lot of people do, but I've pastored a lot of folks that hurt a lot. Somebody say amen to that. And uh, if you can't say amen, say, oh. <laughs> I pastor a lot of people that face those things and uh, they could give testimony to what a discouraging reality it is to be hurting, uh, just to merely hurt all the time. I had a grandmother that was uh, was stricken with rheumatoid arthritis in her mid-twenties, and she was confined to a bed from that point until uh, the day that the Lord took her home. She could sometimes get up and shuffle around the house a little bit, or sometimes on special occasions with enough medication she might be able to bear it and go out in public and go to a wedding or go to a funeral, but by and large, her life was lived in that little bedroom and her life was lived in that bed and uh, she hurt 24 hours a day. There was never a time when she was not hurting. And when you're hurting like that, when your health is debilitated, man, it's enough sometimes to make a man want to quit living. And it's enough to make a man discouraged, undoubtedly. So his health was debilitated. But you know the worst part of all of it? I believe I'm accurate in saying this because when you read through Job's complaint throughout the book of Job, you've heard me say this before, but his chief complaint was not that his children were dead, was not that his wealth had been destroyed, it was not that his health had failed, was not that he hurt all the time, was not that there was very possibly problems between him and his wife in their home. The biggest thing that Job complained about was that he couldn't understand where God was in all that. He couldn't understand why he was going through what he was going through. He couldn't understand what God was trying to do in his life. And that tells me that his heart was disoriented. This is a man that is confused by what he is going through. And very often in your life and mine, when heartache and trial comes, the greatest burden in all of it will be simply that we do not destroy, do not understand it. We cannot explain it. We raise our children for the Lord and they get out. We uh, try to protect our body as the temple of God uh, and be healthy. I'm talking about you and not me. And uh, then all of a sudden, uh, sickness and affliction comes. We try to put God at the center of our marriage and still we find discord. We try to yield to the Lord that which belongs to Him in tithing and in giving and Still, we find ourselves facing financial obstacle and we sometimes struggle just to understand just what God is doing in our life. I believe Job was in that circumstance. Now, here's what I find interesting. A man in Job's situation would probably be asking some questions. I know I would be. 
there'd be a lot of questions that I would have for God. For instance, I'd probably ask God, how could this happen to me? Job does not ask how. He already knew the heartbreaking details of what had transpired. The servants had come like waves crashing after each other into his life and described the devastation and destruction that had befallen him. He does not ask how. I would have probably asked this question. I bet you would have. I would have probably asked why. Lord, why did this happen to me? Why didn't that happen to them? Why did this take place in my life? But you know, we don't really find, and particularly not in our text in chapter 2, Job doesn't ask why. I think Job knew that that answer could only come from heaven. He wouldn't ask his wife why, because he knew she didn't know the answer. He would direct that question to the Almighty. And so when he's speaking to his wife in our text, in in chapter 2, verses 7 down through verse 10, and verse 10 in particular, he does not ask why is this happening to us. Job doesn't ask who. He never says who is responsible for this. And I think the reason is he already knew who was responsible for it. I think he knew that God was the master of his destiny. Job said that God had taken away. He said the Lord hath taken away. He knew that God had distributed the evil to Job. He says, shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? You know, one of my favorite things about the book of Job, Job never once gives the devil credit for any any bit of heartache in his life. He never says the devil did this to me. Instead, he always says, God is the one that directeth my way. Though he slay me, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Hey, uh, the Lord has brought good and the Lord has brought Evil, he always attributes it to God. So he does not ask who. He knows that God was the master of his destiny. Instead, in our text this evening, verse number 10, Job does not ask how, and he does not ask why, and he does not ask who. But he does say this to his wife. He says, what shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this did not Job sin with his lips. He did not ask how or why or who, but he asked what. Here's the question I have. What is he asking? You know, every word of your King James Bible is there on purpose, not there by accident. Hey, listen, whenever the Holy Ghost pinned down for God so loved the world, that word love was written by the Holy Ghost. Do you know this word what was written by him too? The same Holy Ghost that wrote loved in John 3.16 wrote what in Job 2.10. It must be there for a reason. So I guess the, the question I want to answer not in the preaching is what is he asking? Or what does the what mean? Now I think most of us conversationally can recognize that there is a linguistic tool that is being used here. It is in some ways similar or akin to a rhetorical question. In other words, he is asking what and then leaving a space there for his wife to feel hanging in the air the absence of an alternative to their situation. And I think that we could maybe say that in some ways, probably three ways he could be asking this question what. He could be implying the rest of it and leaving to his wife to infer what he's saying. I think there's three things he could really be asking when he says, 
what? And I want to share those with you this evening. I think the first is this. You know, Job could be asking this. What does it mean? What does it mean that this has happened in our life, honey? Shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord? Or shall we not receive evil? The fact that we have received evil at the hand of God. What does that mean to you and I? And I just wrote down a few simple questions. Number one, does it mean God has failed? I think it would be easy for most of us in the midst of our sorrow to make the assumption whenever things go bad, God must have messed up. I think when he says what, he's saying, what do you think, honey? Do you think God has failed us in this moment? And I think the answer must be no. He has not failed them. Can I say when trials and heartaches come to your life and mine, our flesh has a tendency to vaunt itself against our faith and to stand up and say, look, God has failed you. God has messed up. He has dropped the ball in your life. But can I remind you, if God made a mistake in your life, it'd be the first mistake that He's ever made throughout eternity past. If God ever made a mistake in your life, it'd be the only one He's ever going to make in eternity future. I hate to say this to you. I don't mean to be rude. But flat out, I don't think you nor me are important enough for God to blow the whole deal messing up your life or mine. I don't think it means God has failed because troubles come, because things are disappointing, because they don't work out the way that we think they should. You know why? Because I find that everything God does, He does right. I looked up, listen now, I looked up the word uh, perfect in the Word of God as it related to God. And I found a few verses that stuck with me. Deuteronomy 32.4 says this. Sometimes people would say, you know, preacher, uh, God, uh, what He's doing in my life, it is He has failed me. It is not working the way that I wish it was. It may be working out for someone else, but it is not working for me. God has not accomplished what I desire. But listen to what Moses pinned down in Deuteronomy 32.4. He said about the Lord, He is the rock and His work is perfect. For all His ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is He. Can I tell you tonight, God always gets the job done. God always accomplishes what He's trying to accomplish. Now, what he's trying to accomplish and what you and I may desire may be two entirely separate and different things. But God never fails in the accomplishing of his work. His work is perfect. God always gets the job done. If God's desire and design for you was that you not face the calamity you're facing, you would not be facing it. If God's desire and purpose in your life is that you face the disappointment that you're facing, it's because God has desired and designed that that is what He is wanting to accomplish. God has never come up short. You know what it means to come up short. Right? I want to be clear in what I say. I'm not saying that failure equates sin, but I am saying that in the Bible, the term sin, Brother Charlie, means to miss the mark, to come up short. Uh, the Bible says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's how the Bible talks about sin. You know, they come short of God. Uh, the God tells you, He's the standard. He don't come up short. Now, there is no further than Him. He is the standard. Everything He does, He does exactly correct. His work is perfect. Then I found this in Psalms 18.30. The psalmist says, As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all those that trust in Him. Not only is what God accomplishes perfect, but the way God accomplishes it is always perfect. 
you know, you and I might go about a problem in two different ways. And I'll tell you, for a lot of things in life, there's a right way and there's a wrong way. If you don't believe that, you ain't married. Somebody say amen to that. There's a right way and there is a wrong way. It could be loading the dishwasher, but there's a right way and a wrong way. Uh, it, it is sure enough folding the laundry. There is a right way and a wrong way. I am convinced of this, that uh, the only exception to that rule is a fitted sheet. Somebody say amen. There is no right way except to set it on fire to fold a fitted sheet. But now you ask my wife, she's going to testify something different because she's got a way. And I will say this, in our home, her way is the right way. But you know, you can, I mean, it don't make, make no difference to me, Brother Ken, if you take it, crumple it up in a ball and shove it in the hall closet. That's how you fold a fitted sheet. But not a, hey man, but not according to her. There is a right way to do that. But can I tell you, to me, it don't make no difference. I've never opened the whole closet and said, look at all these fitted sheets wadded up and thrown in here. Of course, probably part of that is because I was the one that did it. But, but I've also never opened it up and said, my soul, look at all these beautiful folded fitted sheets either. To me, it does not matter. But you know, there are some things that there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. Can I tell you something? God always does it the right way. What He's trying to do in your life is right, but the way He's doing it in your life is right. I think He looked at His wife and said, what does it mean, honey? Does it mean that God has failed? No, it does not mean God has failed. I think number two, He could be asking this. What does it mean? Does it mean that God has forsaken us? It's possible for God not to have failed, but merely for Him to have abandoned his people. But I don't believe really, if we're going to be scripturally honest, I don't believe that is possible. It is conceivable that such a thing, such an event could exist, but it is not scripturally possible that God could forsake His people. Because the Hebrews writer, quoting the book of Deuteronomy, by the way, the Hebrews writer says, Hebrews 13.5, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For He hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. In other words, you might look at it and say, well, maybe God has turned His back on me. Maybe God doesn't see my heartache and my tears, my disappointments and my confusion. And I tell you, God has never forsook anybody except one. There's one that He forsook, Brother Charlie. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? And I tell you, He forsook Him that He might never have to forsake you and me. The forsakenness that you and I deserve, He took. He bore, He became on Calvary so that you and I might never be forsaken by God that know the Lord as our Savior. So that means this. I don't know what you're going through, but I can tell you this. God didn't forsake you. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know why you're going through it. I don't know when it's going to be over. But I do know this. I know that God has not forsaken you. And then I think He could have been saying this. What does it mean, honey? Does it mean God has failed? No, because God doesn't fail. Does it mean that God has forsaken us? No, honey, it cannot mean that because God does not forsake His people. But does it mean that God has forfeited in our life? In other words, does it mean that God's quit blessing us? That He's quit favoring us? That He's quit loving us? And He has quit working in our life and He has turned us over to the enemy and allowing Him to have full authority in our lives? I would say this, that it does not mean that because God never forfeits the life of His people. Job knew this because he says later on in Job 23, 8-10, he's talking about trying to find God, and he says, Behold, I go forward, 
but he is not there and backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. And he hideth himself on the right hand that I cannot see him. But he knoweth the way that I take. Listen now. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job likens himself gold put in a refining uh, fire that is purifying him. And you know what that is? You know, uh, when the, when the uh, refiner has put gold, when the smith has put gold in the refiner's fire, it's not because he's done with it. It's because he's not done with it. You listening to me this evening? It's not because he's done with it. If he was done with it, it would be finished and completed and placed on a neck or on a ring finger or on a wrist or placed upon a shelf. But no, when it's in the fire, it's because he's still working on it. In your life, the trials, the afflictions that you and I experience, they're present there because God's not done with us. He's still working in your life and in mine. What does it mean? But you know, I think there could be another way in which this question is asked. The first could be, what does it mean? Does it mean God has failed or He's forsaken us or He's forfeited us to the enemy? No, it doesn't mean any of those things. God doesn't give His people up that way. He doesn't fail His people that way. But I think there's another way this question could be asked. Remember, he looks and he says, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? I don't think he's asking his wife, what control have we over what God dispenses to us? Because we know that we don't have a direct control over what God gives us. We can obey Him and enjoy blessing. We can disobey Him and enjoy, enjoy chastening. <laughs> but uh, but we don't have direct control over it. So what's he asking, Brother Kim? He says, what shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? I think he might have been asking this. Honey, what does it change that we have experienced these problems? And stop and think about it. Everything in his life has changed. But now there's some things that did not change. And he says, God's given us good, God's given us evil. But that don't change certain things in our life. Can I tell you something? It doesn't matter whether the sun rises on you in the morning tomorrow. There are some things that will never change. There are some things that will never change. I was watching UT football on Saturday and I'm glad that we won. Uh, praise the Lord. We'll take them where we can get them. And um, I'm a UT fan, man. I love it. Uh, you'd have to be to still keep watching it. Somebody say amen to that. You don't do it for your good health. And uh, but I was watching. I, I told Brother Kerry, I said, uh, you know, in a world, I texted him, I sent him a message. I said, the world, well, everything's changing. I'm talking about politics just going crazy. Societal norms are out the window. I'm talking about diseases ravaging our land. We can't go anywhere. Every, nothing's the same as it was a year ago. I said, it's comforting to know there's some things still the same. And our quarterback's terrible. Some things just don't never change. Some things do. Some things don't. And I think maybe he was asking, you know, all these things we're going through, what does it change? In other words, we could ask this question, does it change God's worthiness? You say, preacher, do you really believe that's what he's saying? Well, he says... Shall we receive good at the hand of God? Now remember what she just said. She just said, go ahead and curse God and die. Job looks at her and says, now that ain't no way to do God. We're going to receive good at His hand and not receive evil? Who's God after all, honey? It's not us that's God. It's not us that's in control. It's not us that governs the universe. It's Him that does it. 
it doesn't change the fact that He's still worthy of our service. He's still worthy of our praise. He's still worthy of our love. He's still worthy of our devotion. And i got news for you. I don't know what you're going through. There could be people. wouldn't be the first time that I'd be unbeknownst preaching to people that have gotten devastating news. Going through things I couldn't even imagine. Things that are going to be months long prayer, wars and battles. You might be going through things I don't even know that you're going through. But I'll tell you, I don't care what you're going through. God is still worthy of your praise and your service and your love. Uh, he could give you nothing but evil and He'd still be good. Because His goodness is not predicated on us receiving good. We receive good because He is good. When we receive evil, and by the way, let me make this statement here. Uh, there's two ways in which the word evil is used in your Bible. Sometimes it can mean uh, moral wickedness and depravity. And that's the way we're used to hearing it. Uh, that, that a person is an evil man or those are evil actions or evil works. Sometimes in the Bible, as is the case in our text, evil means something that is unpleasant or undesired or unlooked for or unwanted. Uh, something uh, we might call evil days. And uh, I can't remember. I was watching. I, I saw a weather. Um, I saw a weather uh, forecast for the next few days. I can't remember. I remember what it was. I, they they were talking about the next few days, and they said uh, said Sunday it's going to be you know spotty showers and mild. Said Monday it's going to be beautiful and we're going to have. And then, Brother Ken, it said, and then Tuesday's going to be ugly. That's the way it said it. Ugly. I thought, how do you know? Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Man, some people may love 55 and rainy. You don't know that. Who are you? I mean, where did all of this meteorological shaming come from in our society? Where you can tell people that a day is ugly. It might be a beautiful day to some people. You have no right to impose your hierarchy of, uh, of perspective on the weather, on other people. Man, you just need to be tolerant. Let people have their opinions about the weather. They may love that day. It may be the most beautiful day that you've ever seen. That being said, it's going to be ugly weather Tuesday. <laughs> but Because, uh, yeah, some things just aren't subjective. <laughs> I don't know how we got there. Oh, you know, the reality is what is meant by that statement is that it's unpleasant. That's going to be unpleasant weather. Sometimes the word evil in the Bible, it doesn't denote moral depravity, but it denotes unpleasant. And that's what Job's talking about here. He's saying we, we've had some hard times. We've had some bad days, some things we don't want, some things we never prayed for. Honey, some things we did not ask for. But does it change God's worthiness? It does not. He's worthy to be praised. He was worthy, listen, before when our life was nothing but sunshine and roses. And now that it's turned 55 and cloudy and rainy and cold, now all of a sudden that heartache and sorrow has come in. God is still worthy to be praised. Does not change His worthiness. Here's the next question. Does it change His wisdom? Does it change God's wisdom that you have all of a sudden been faced with trials and difficulty? You know, we have a tendency to be willing to trust God's wisdom when it agrees pretty neatly with ours. And then all of a sudden, when His wisdom is contrary to all our wisdom, we start to wonder whether He's got things figured out or not. Could it be we've got more confidence in our own wisdom than in His? There's a reason the writer of the book of Proverbs said we're to, uh, uh, we're to trust not in our own under, understanding, we're to lean not unto our own understanding, but we're to in all thy ways acknowledge Him and He will direct our paths. We're not to trust our own wisdom. We're not to lean unto our own wisdom. You know, you're, when you're leaning, you're doing something passive. 
Uh, leaning is not active typically, it's passive. You're just leaning away. And very often in your life and mine, when we don't actively engage God seeking His wisdom about a matter, uh, we're leaning under our own understanding. You know, whenever God's doing what we think He ought to do, we tend to say, boy, God's so wise and benevolent. And then when we start leaning on our own understanding, living our own way, and God does something contrary to that, we start to wonder, has God really got this figured out? Can I just inform you tonight? This isn't really, this isn't deep. This isn't no profound. Can I tell you something? It don't matter how bad things get in your life. God still knows what He's doing. He does not change His wisdom. You trusted Him when everything was going well. Why can't you trust Him when everything's going hard? I, I believe it was uh, Corey Ten Boone that said, "Don't ever, ever listen. Don't ever let what you, uh, for, or don't ever forget in the darkness what you knew in the light. Don't ever allow what you knew to be true in the cold light of day be robbed from you in the darkness of confusion and disappointment and despair." And I'm just telling you, listen. Just because you don't understand, that doesn't mean he don't understand. Just because you can't unriddle what you're going through, does not mean that there is not wisdom and divine purpose to it. Uh, speaking about that way, by the way. Uh, speaking about that being perfect, by the way, we, we talked about his work is perfect, his way is perfect. Listen to what the psalmist says, or David says in 2 Samuel 22, verse 33. He says this, God is my strength and power, and he maketh my way perfect. I like that. In other words, his work is perfect. What he's trying to do is perfect. His way is perfect. The way that he gets it done is perfect. But go beyond that and say this, what he's doing in my life, how he's transforming me, how He's changing me is also perfect. He's perfectly wise. He knows exactly what He's doing. So I would say it does not change His wisdom. Then I would ask this third question. I really think this is sort of what Job is getting at. We're coming down to the close of the message and really the close of the thought. He could be saying, what does it mean? Does it mean God has failed? No. His work is perfect. His way is perfect. Does it mean God has forsaken? No, He doesn't forsake His people. Does it mean God has forfeited? No, He doesn't forfeit us under the enemy. So what does it change? Does it change His worthiness? No, He's still worthy to be praised. Does it change His wisdom? Does it mean He doesn't know what He's doing? Does it mean that He is incapable of leading us and guiding us? No, He maketh my way perfect. Here's the question I have for you, and I can answer it for Job, but I can't answer it for you. I hope I can answer it for me, but I know I can answer it for Job. Does it change our worship? What about Job? Job 1.20, one of the greatest verses in the entire Word of God. After Job hears that everything in his life has been robbed from him, the Bible says then Job arose and rent his mantle, shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. He worshipped. I can't speak for you, but I can say for Job, did it change your worship, Job? Did it change how you love the Lord? Did it change how you serve the Lord? Did it change your commitment to the Lord, Job? I think we could say about Job, no, it didn't change him. He worshipped God when things was going well. He worshipped God when things was going tough. But my question to you, does it change your worship? What does it change? I'll tell you this, it don't change anything about God. But what does it change about you? You see, I think there's a third way that we could consider his question, what? And I'm really not even going to preach this. I just want to mention it because it's really just an extension of that last statement. What, what does it change about our, about our worship? What does it change about what God expects of us? Nothing. We're still expected to serve Him. So we could ask this question. What 
What does it mean? What does it change? Here I think is really what he's saying. I think he's saying all of them, but I think at the heart of it is this question. What do we do? What do we do? Shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and shall we not receive evil? He's not saying, honey, what are you going to do about this? What are you going to change? How are you going to fix it? For he knows she can't. So I think what he's saying when he says what, is he's saying, what are we going to do in response to the calamity that we have experienced? In other words, what are we going to do? Are we going to quit on God? I think that's what his wife was encouraging him to do. We can wrap in nobility the... The, the, the exhortation that she gives, she tells him to curse God and die. It may have been she was saying this in pity. It may have been that she was saying this in pettiness. I do not know. But I know that at the heart of it, what she was saying is, honey, just give up and quit. And quit going on and quit trying to serve God. All it's brought you is heartache. Job, in reply to that, says, thou speakest. Is one of the foolish women speak. What? What are we going to do, honey? Are we going to receive only good and not evil? No, of course not. Everybody, I hate to tell you this, but there ain't never been ever been a person born that hasn't had their taste of both success and sorrow, of happiness and heartache. You and I are not exempt from that body of, of people, from that contingency of people. You and I are going to have good days, going to have bad days, we're going to have glorious days, we're going to have grievous days, we're going to have mountaintops and valleys, great days and dark days. We better go ahead and make up our mind on the good days, what we're going to do on the bad days. What are we going to do? Are we just going to quit? When the doctor gives that phone call and says it's much worse than we thought, what are we going to do? We're going to say, okay, God, I'm done with church, I'm done with my Bible, I'm done with prayer. I was only serving you when things were going good. Are we going to say, hey, listen, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When a family, uh, heartache and suffering and rebellion and heartache comes and we don't understand, we're going to say, God, I was only willing to serve you when you were the glue that held it all together. Now all of a sudden that I don't understand what's going on, I'm done with you. What are we going to do? Are we going to quit? No, we can't quit. God's trying to accomplish something in your life and mine. And He needs our faithfulness to do it. What do we do? Do we quit? No. Number two, what do we do? And by the way, let me read this verse to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work. Well, steadfast is a sanctified way of saying stubborn. Bullheaded. Stubborn. And now some of y'all, I know some of y'all can do that. Why don't we be stubborn for the Lord? I'm talking about being stubborn and saying, I'm not going to let anything move me. I'm going to keep serving God. doesn't matter what happens. I'm not going to quit. Steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain. What do we do? Do we quit? No, we don't quit. Here's the second question. What do we do? Do we compromise? She says, curse God and die. The reason, Job, this is happening to you is because you're serving God. I don't know how much she understood of what was going on in some ways. It's almost like she understands more than Job understood. She seems to draw a connection between his steadfastness before God and his suffering. I don't know why, but in some mysterious way, she maybe instinctively, maybe by way of revelation, but in some way she understood that if Job had compromised, 
if he had quit serving God, if he had relented to the temptations of the world and the assaults of the devil, everything would have gotten better. Everything would have changed. Can I ask you something? Listen, if it was worth standing over before when things was going well, are you listening? If it was worth standing for then, then it ought to be worth standing for now. We live in a funny old world where people have been talking about taking a stand my whole life. But now it seems so loath to take a stand. And it seems like, and I don't know why this is, but I've, I've observed this in the life of preachers. It seems like very often in their waning years, in their, in their twilight years, they are sometimes even more apt to compromise, to not hold the line. I don't know if they're weary. I don't know if they're tired. I don't know if they've grown prideful, believing wisdom is, has imparted to them a better perspective than uh, what has uh, given them foundation throughout their whole life. But suffice it to say, we live in a world full of people that are compromised. But I just wonder why, if it don't matter, why did it matter to you at one time? What's changed? The truth has not changed. The Word of God's not changed. Right and wrong has not changed. Sin and separation have not changed. They still are whatever they have been. I like what Job says in Job 13, 14. You know this verse. You've heard it before. Job says, Wherefore do I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in mine hand? In other words, I'm not going to try to keep myself alive, nor am I going to take my own life. My life is not in my hand. It's in God's hand. And he says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Now most of us stop there in the reading of it. Listen to what he says. He goes on a little further. He says, but I will maintain mine own ways before. I don't think Job is saying, I'm going to do my own thing. I think what he's saying is, as regards the, 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 the vouchsafing of my life, that is not my responsibility. I'm not going to take my life in mine own hands. It's not mine to extinguish. It's not mine to, to safeguard. It's God that I trust Him. And though He slay me, I will trust Him because it's not my job to keep me alive. But he says, I tell you what is my job, maintaining mine own ways before it. Making sure I'm living right, I'm living straight, and I'm doing what God expects me to do. I, in other words, Job says, man, everything's gone sideways, but what God expects of me has not changed. Just because my children are dead, that don't mean I'm not called to holy. Just because my wife has lost her confidence in my leadership of the home, that doesn't mean that God hadn't called me to holiness. Just because all of my wealth has dissipated and disappeared and vanished in a moment's time, that doesn't change what God expects of me. Far be it from me to compromise, to turn my back on the truth of the Word of God. Do we compromise? No. And here's the last thing. Here's the question that I think part of what she's asking. She said, does thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God. And die. Job says, what? What? What do we curse just because evil has come our way? Was our praise so hollow? Was our worship so empty that it was only ever predicated on immediate temporal circumstances? Were we only going to bless God when things went well? Was it a cold, transactional love that we had for Him that we would only bless Him when He would bless us? Or do we bless Him because He's worthy to be blessed? Job had answered the question already. He said in chapter 1, Naked came I out of my mother's womb. 
Naked shall I return? The Job said, I don't expect to die with anything. He's wrong about that. He, he died with more wealth than he had began this story with. He said, I fully expect to go to my grave with nothing. He said, the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, he's saying this, honey, what do we do? Do we curse just because things have all fell apart? Did we only bless Him because He blessed us? Did we only love Him because He lavished us? Or did we serve Him because He was worthy to be served? Because of what He had done in our lives? Because we were ever and forever indebted to Him for His grace and His mercy? Why are you serving? Why do you love Him? Do you love Him because you feel like He fills your bank account? There may come a day He doesn't. Do you love Him because He... You feel like He safeguards your physical body. There may come a day that disease ravages you. What are you going to do on that day? You going to curse Him? A lot do. <laughs> you see it all the time. People that and and, and I, I believe a man can be in a, I, I believe a man can be saved and then and then apostatize on God. Turn on the Lord. The Bible's full of individuals that have done that. Uh, but I have found this to be true, that often where people, where there is no doctrinal foundation or where there is a loose appreciation for the truth of the Word of God, people are more apt to apostatize, to turn away from the Lord. You see it all the time in, in, in quote-unquote Christendom, people that loved God, knew God, or said that they did, that have turned their back and walked away. What are you going to do when those things come? The question is not why. The question is not how. And the question is not who. Question is what? And really, in a sense, though I preached on it, it's not what does it mean, because you know that it doesn't mean that God has forsaken you or failed you or forfeits you. Uh, the question is not really what does it change, because you know that it doesn't change anything about God's worthiness or God's wisdom, and it shouldn't change anything about your worship. Really, the only thing up in the air is what do we do? What do we do? My question is, whatever you're facing in your life, what are you going to do? Are you going to continue? Are you going to be steadfast, unmovable? Are you going to bless Him even when burdens and heartaches come? Say, preacher, what does a man that does that get? Go ahead and read on to the end of the book of Job. Find out how God blessed him. Can I tell you this? The greatest blessing that Job received was not the double as regarded his material wealth, but it was the revelation of who God was that he had learned throughout that whole process. He knew God. In a way. You know what he says later on? <laughs> he said he said later on that he had heard about Him. He had heard people talk about Him. He said, now mine eyes have seen Him. Now I know who He is. Now I'm not, wonder, I'm not hearing from other people who God is. I know who He is myself. The greatest blessing Job would receive. So what are you going to do in light of your current battles? Let's bow together this evening as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. And I invite you to come and find a place at this altar and answer that question in your heart and mind. What will I do? Will I go on? Will I serve Him? Will I love Him? Will I bless Him? Will I stay committed to Him? Only you can answer that question. I believe the Lord awaits that answer if He stirred your heart. So why don't you come down and meet Him in this altar and speak with Him. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.